0: Good morning, Canoe Creek, and welcome to Father's Day Sunday here at Canoe Creek. We're excited to celebrate and praise God together. Excited that you are here. Uh, the reality of it is uh, Mother's Day, top three attended Sundays of the year, one of the top three. Father's Day, least three attended Sundays of the year. It's just reality. So if you are here, um, I really appreciate you prioritizing your spiritual growth. And for those of you who maybe are uh, long to be biological fathers but are not, I am sure that if you have that desire that you probably are more of a spiritual father to children around you, then you realize it making an impact and a difference. I'm excited to be able to introduce to you this morning Evan Sievert, uh, my intern this summer uh, in the preaching ministry, and I'm really excited to have him because as we were supposed to come up. I'm kind of into the video and he says, Hey, we got 20 seconds. And like, I would have been still sitting there when this whole
1: thing started. So thank God for interns. Would you welcome Evan Siever? <laughs> hey, good morning, everybody. Just real quick. want to give you a couple uh, opportunities to engage here at Canoe Creek. Number one, Next week is middle school VBS, this week coming up. uh, Elementary VBS, as you saw from the video, went great. It was a phenomenal experience to engage with the kids and teach them more about Jesus. And so now we have that opportunity to do that with our middle schoolers, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So if you haven't already, sign up uh, your children or sign up to volunteer. Uh, Last I heard, we have about 80 kids, 80 middle schoolers signed up. So we're definitely going to need all the help that we can get. Secondly, next Sunday is Connect class during the 1030 hour. If you're new to the church or you just want some general information, this is a great class to just give you some good information about the church and help you get involved here at Canoe Creek.
0: So we are currently in a sermon series and will be through the rest of the summer called Binge Summer, called Binge the Bible. And the idea behind it was, you know, obviously during summer, big movies come out and all that type of stuff, and maybe your kids, and maybe even you, if you have some free time on your hand, kind of just sit around and, and binge on Netflix or something like that. And we said, hey, listen, why don't we look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to get the overall narrative arc of God's story? And we've been looking at various events that are historically true um, within the scriptures that are not random, they're uniquely placed together. When we see them in the way that God has put them there for us, they weave a powerful tapestry of what is God's narrative art, give us a better understanding of who God is, a better understanding of God's kingdom, a better understanding of why things maybe are the way that they are and how I fit into all of that and the purpose and and plan that God has in my life as well. And so as we've been doing this, we're excited. We've been looking at a key verse the last few weeks, which comes from 1 Samuel. It says, and the Lord told him, that is the prophet of God, Samuel, "Uh, listen to all the people are saying to you, it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Ultimately, the people had said, hey, we want to be like all the other nations, give us a king, just like all the other nations. And essentially they were saying, we don't want God to lead us. And we looked at a few weeks ago how this led to one of the darkest and most difficult stories in all the Bible. And if you haven't caught up and you'd like to, our Bible app is there. We're on Spotify, everything else, to where you can listen to past sermons. And as we think about that, it's important to recognize that the people got exactly what they asked for. So over the next 350-plus years, you have 40 different kings and and eight of them are considered good. And of those eight, it's still questionable. And so you have this horrific cycle of issue after issue within the people of God. And here's the amazing thing, though. God stays faithful in spite of their self-destructive tendencies. Even when we are not faithful to God, God remains faithful to whatever it is that he said, whatever it is that he's promised for us. And here's how we see this show up, uh, because what happens is you have your first three kings of the kingdom, Saul, David, and his son Solomon. And then after that, the kingdom splits up. Solomon's son Rehoboam takes over, and uh, to his defense, I think his dad had already caused some problems that were going to split the kingdom, but Rehoboam came in and just made it happen. And so you have ten of the tribes make their own kingdom, two of the tribes stay where they're at. And this is what we read in 1 Kings. I'll take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, 10 tribes. I'll give one tribe to the son uh, so that David may, my servant, may always have a lamp before him in Jerusalem. This is important. God made a promise to Abraham, reaffirmed that promise to David, that his, his heirs would be the ones who would bring forth the anointed one of God, the one that would redeem humanity The one that would give even a self-destructive people the opportunity to be changed, transformed, or restored. And God consistently kept this promise all throughout time. In fact, going into the New Testament, one of the first verses you read, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God essentially says, hey, listen, whatever it is that I promise, I will keep. But here's the reality. We're going to look at through this period of time in God's word, how that promise was held on by a thread. It was inches away from being lost. It was inches away. In fact, many, many people thought the promise of God had ultimately failed. And so if I were to sum up this period of time, and by the way, if, if, The the timeline of the Bible is confusing to you. Evans made an awesome timeline and put it on the chairs there for you. Because a lot of times people think, well, this book was written last in the Bible. Therefore, it must have been last in time. But it doesn't work like that in the Bible. You have all the historical books and the prophets fit somewhere in there. And if you want to know what it was like during that time, all you got to do is watch one of these crazy uh, Viking shows on any one of the Netflix these days. Just everybody killing everybody and everybody trying to be in charge and kings killing kings, and so on and so forth. And as they're going through all of that, here's the point. Even the worst of times, even when people are completely self-destructive, God is faithful to his promise. He has a perfect and powerful plan in which he can bring about the change in any situation, in any person.
1: And so as we begin to think about the self-destructive nature of kings during this divided kingdom period, there's one king that sticks out among all, and it's this guy named Ahab. And he sticks out because of this one specific verse in 1 Kings 16, which says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. And so you might be wondering, who, who's this Ahab guy, and what did he do to make God so angry? For one, he's a strong worshiper of false gods. He was not following Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's following other gods, building temples to these other gods, and building altars and making sacrifices on these altars to other gods. He also, time and time again, goes against prophets of God, including Elijah, who we'll talk about a little bit later. But towards the end of his time as king, there's one story in 1 Kings 21 that I want to focus on for a little bit. And I'm going to give you a quick summary of that. So, long story short, Ahab wants some new real estate. You know, his palace isn't big enough, whatever it is, and he's looking out and he sees there's this vineyard nearby, and he wants it. So he goes to the owner of the vineyard, whose name is Naboth, and he asks him, hey, let me me buy your vineyard. And Naboth tells him, no. So Ahab, being the evil and destructive king that he is, goes home and whines about it. The text literally says that he laid on his bed, sulking and refused to eat. So then his wife Jezebel, she pops in and she's looking at him and she's thinking, what's he doing? This is the king of Israel who has just about anything he could want, can do just about anything he wants. Why 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 is he acting like a crybaby? So then she asks him, you know, what's going on? And he explains, you know, I wanted this vineyard really bad and the guy told me no. And then she loses it. She's just like, is this how a king of Israel should act? Get up, go eat, I'll get your vineyard. So she starts taking things into her own hands. She begins writing letters to the people in the city, uh, addressing herself as Ahab, and she's writing to people in the city saying that Naboth, the owner of the vineyard, was cursing God and cursing the king, committing blasphemy. So when these witnesses are sharing their testimonies about this guy Naboth, the other people of the city are hearing this and thinking, this guy's committing blasphemy. That's, that's no good. We've got to do something. So they drag him outside, they stone, and kill him. Isn't that crazy? Over this vineyard, someone has to die? So Ahab hears that Naboth is dead, and, you know, he gets out of his little pouty phase and goes and takes over the vineyard. So remember that verse that said that Ahab made God angry? Well, now we get to see that verse come to life. For whatever reason, this is the final straw. This is, like, this is it for God. Whatever it is in this event, God is ready to finally do something about it. So he sends Elijah, a prophet of God, to Ahab, now, they've already gone, they've tussled up a couple times before, and so Elijah goes to Ahab and he tells him, Because you have murdered a man and taken his property, you will now die where Naboth died. And it doesn't take more than a couple of chapters for that prophecy to come true. And so now you may be wondering, Evan, I get it, you're the intern, you're new at this. What does this story have to do with anything? It's not as cool as Elijah and Ahab facing off with the other prophets, it's not as destructive as Ahab defeating another nation. This entire account revolves around a silly vineyard, and that's the point. Ahab and his wife are so out of touch with reality that over a vineyard, an innocent man has to die. There's nothing special about this vineyard. It has no significance except that it's close to the palace, and Ahab wants it. But when he's told no, his lack of maturity shines through, and his queen Jezebel, who is all too enamored with the power that she and her husband have, shows just how destructive they can be. So if I were to sum up what Evan says so well there,
0: basically Ahab didn't show up for church on Father's Day. Okay, uh, that's what we know to be true about this guy. And he and his wife Jezebel, they had a daughter named Athaliah, and that's where we turn next because Athaliah was even more evil and more ambitious than her parents. In fact, she was so ambitious, she's the only woman recorded to ever be a queen and rule over any one of the kingdoms of God because she usurped and took the throne in a way that she should have not. Now, This daughter, being the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I'll be honest with you, when you start talking about the kings and timelines, it gets a little confusing. There's kings of the north, kings of the south that have the same name, and you can't figure it out. And this guy only reigned for one month, this guy for 40 years. And it's just so hard to keep it together. And I just want to throw up this map just to give you an idea of... There's a king in the split under Rehoboam. There's a king in the north, and there's a king in the south. Israel being to the north, Judah being to the south. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes to the south. And, and as this is all going on, we got to remember that God had said, for the sake of David, who was a king over the whole nation at one point, he would keep this... this uh, Kingdom to the south, Judah intact. But if you're tracking with us, Athaliah is a daughter of Ahab, who is a king in the north. How in the world does she become a queen in the southern kingdom? Well, one verse really helps us pull it together in 2 Kings. It says, Joram, son of Jehoshaphat, he began his reign as king of Judah. That is the kingdom in the south. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. He's an evil king. Why did he do that? Well, he had married a daughter of Ahab. He had committed evil in the sight of the Lord. Other historical records bear out what is typically true, whether it's an alliance or whether it's a treaty, Ahab had given his daughter Athaliah in marriage to the king in the south. Now, if you don't understand what's going on here, let me paint a picture for you. You currently have the fox in the hen house. You have one of the most evil and corrupt people among the royal palace of all the heirs and children of David. I mean, you got enough animosity as is between the tribes and the split and all this. Not let, enough to say that God has always said, through David, this the world will be blessed. Through his heirs, the world is going to be restored, so on and so forth, right? And Athaliah realizes, well, that really doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, her son, she sees to it that he becomes king. It's in a matter of a year that he is killed. He's assassinated because... Like many, he's horrible. Athaliah loses her mind. She goes on an absolute rampage, and she kills all of the sons and heirs of David in the royal palace, except for one. A little boy just under one year old named Joash. His paternal aunt protected him cared for him, and kept him safe, which goes back to this promise that God makes. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. It's important to remember this because even though the descendants of David had uh, drifted far from him, that the sons of David had drifted far from God, God was gonna keep his promise. Even when we're unfaithful, And when we hit the self-destructive button in our own lives, God is willing in his graciousness and his love to come along and say, hey, I can restore you. I can heal you. I can bring you back to something great. And ultimately, as we think about this, only a few people knew that this boy, Joash, had been rescued. So for nearly six years, you have all the people of Israel wondering has the promise of God failed? They're without hope underneath the oppression of an evil ruler in an extremely dark time. I don't know if maybe you felt that way at times or a season of your life to where you really have no hope. You don't think there's anything to look forward to. You're not even sure what next step to take. But... The faithfulness of God is powerful. The faithfulness of God is perfect. And what the narrative arc of God tells us when we look at his story from Genesis to Revelation, it may not always be in our time, but he always shows up.
1: And so when we think that Ahab could be as bad as it gets and that Joash might, Joash might lead us into this better era, only six generations later we get another king named Manasseh who may even be worse than Ahab. To give you an idea of how bad this guy was, I'm going to give it to you with one statement and two key verses. This guy, this king, Manasseh, sacrificed his own son. Now, if you remember towards the beginning of this series, we looked at another event similar to this, where Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac. But if you know how that story continues, you know that God doesn't allow that to happen. God steps in because Abraham is faithful because he trusts God, because he's following Yahweh. Manasseh is not living by that standard. Manasseh is following other gods who are living by a different moral set of standards who are corrupt and wicked, and his son becomes the victim of that choice. The first of the two verses that I want to give you is going to give us a little bit of insight into how Manasseh was ruling the people of God. In 2 Kings, it tells us that Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. So when you're thinking about the story of Israel up to this point, you'll probably recognize that there's a couple of nations who have just sort of gotten out of existence by God. Like, they've just been in the way, and God has moved them, and in some cases, annihilated them because of how wicked, immoral, and corrupt they are. And yet, under Manasseh's ruling, Israel is worse. worse. The second verse that I want to share with you gives us a little bit of insight into how Manasseh's justice system seemed to be working. And this verse tells us that Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Very scary and eerie verse. And so as we look at a king like this, a king that sacrificed his own son to another god, has led God's people astray and is murdering innocent people in masses— The question is, can this man be redeemed? It would be easy to think not. I'm sure we've all known people who just seem to be evil to their core. They just emit terribleness. Like, they're just bad people. And no matter how much we pray for them and wish that they would change, they don't. But on the flip side of that, I'm sure we've all known people who are good, who seem to emit goodness and kindness. And we thought they would never change either and yet some of them do. And so when we look at a king like this, it's hard to think that this guy could ever change with all the death and destruction that he has caused. But don't we believe in a God who's gracious? A God who's merciful? A God who works in the hearts of sinners? If there's something I've learned from spiritual mentors and people who have come before me, it's that some people need to hit rock bottom before they find God. Some people need to hit rock bottom before they realize their need to repent. Manasseh's story continues. We're told that the Assyrian army comes in, they start taking over parts of Israel, they start taking people prisoner, including King Manasseh. They humiliate him in front of Israel, therefore humiliating Israel itself. And it's in this depth, in this distress, in this humiliation, that we get this comment about Manasseh. In Second Chronicles, it tells us that in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God.
0: Maybe there's just an easy picture of somebody in your mind. They've wounded you. And you don't think that they're deserving of anything, much less the opportunity to receive God's grace, be transformed into a new person. Maybe that person's you in your head. You can't, you can't forgive yourself or you don't think you should be forgiven or that you should have the opportunity for change or transformation or any of those things that are good that come along with a relationship with God. I guess I just have one question. Do you want to finish better than you started? God is gracious. God is loving. And he gives every person that opportunity. Regardless of self-destructive nature. Regardless of just the self-destructive nature of the world and how it rubs off on us. Sometimes just because we're living in the world. Or whatever it may be. God is always giving the opportunity for those who desire to finish well, to be able to finish strong. 1994, in October, 30,000 fans gather together in Texas Stadium for what is one of the most famous pastimes in Texas, high school football state championship. And the two teams, John Tyler High School and Plano East were about to wrap up that year's high school championship. And John Tyler was going to win without a doubt. It was 41 to 17 with 3 minutes and 3 seconds left in the game. Well, Plano scored another touchdown at that time and then proceeded to kick three onside kicks, recovering all three of them, scoring touchdowns after each one. So if you're keeping up, now the score is East Plano's ahead, 44, to John Tyler's 41. I mean, 24 seconds left, game is over, most amazing comeback in the history of high school football championships. So Plano East kicks off the ball to John Tyler. The boy receives it on the three-yard line and in 24 seconds runs 97 yards to score a touchdown, making John Tyler the high school champs, 48 to Plano's East, 44 points. I mean, so close and yet so far. You think about it, it probably only takes three minutes and three seconds to hit the nuclear button in your life and create a problem that seems to just perpetuate year after year after year. Or it could be 30 years of bad decisions one after the other that puts you in a position where you think nothing can change, nothing can be new, nothing can be different. And yet from Genesis to Revelation, God's story over and over again tells us a story that he has the power to redeem even the most self-destructive people if they're just simply willing to humble themselves before Jesus as their king and trust that he knows best. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even some of these difficult stories throughout the history of your people that... We're not always sure why they're there or how they get there or what to do with them, but Father, we pray that you continue to open our eyes to see these historical narratives as powerfully, perfectly placed uh, events to weave together this one overarching narrative of your story of redemption, uh, the story of how your plan is perfect and you have power to redeem even the most corrupt if we are willing to trust that Jesus Christ is King of the universe and make Him a Lord and Savior. Help us to do that. Help us to remember that there is no sin or fault too great that you have not forgiven and that you have not put us in a position to therefore then grow and change and transform as we trust in your Son, Jesus, as our King. Father, help us to look to you and you alone as the sole authority of our moral values in life as our sole authority for vision in life for how we should live and how we should lead in the ways and places that you have put us and father we ask all these things in
1: jesus name amen it's at this time that we enter communion And as we reflect on a message like that, where we talk about all these bad kings and all these terrible people and what they've done, this is a perfect moment to reflect on the perfect king that we follow. The perfect king who came down from heaven in human form and then sacrificed his body in his blood to redeem us. Let's reflect on that as we take these elements.